Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, good morning, everyone. Great to see you guys today. Let's take out our Bibles this morning. We've had an interesting morning here at the church. Some of you might not be aware, but uh, our worship team arrived here on site at around uh, 6.30 this morning, and around 7 o'clock, there was a car accident on Highway 68 right out in front of the church that uh, knocked out the power and access to the church till about 8.45. And uh, the power came back on, and a few of us were able to get here, so we had a small little 9 o'clock service for those who were able to make it. And uh, so it's great to see you guys here today. So some of you might have gotten a text saying that there's no kids ministry, uh, but we actually got it together for the 11 o'clock service. So if you're here with your kids and you'd like them to be uh, downstairs, feel free to rush out right now and get them uh, checked in. Uh, But when I started getting the calls this morning that uh, things were going to be a little bit different, we weren't even sure if we were going to be able to use the facility at all. The highway patrol told us we wouldn't get access to the building until about 11 o'clock, and PG&E took about three hours to tell us that power was even gone in the first place. Uh, So uh, we figured it wasn't going to come back on, and we weren't going to have access, but Uh, As we were thinking about all of that, I just began praying about uh, the teaching, especially because I thought we'd have family, kids inside the service. So I'm going to do something a little different today, and next week we'll get back into the book of Galatians, which of course I was ready to teach, but the Lord led me to this passage in Revelation chapter 2, if you'd go there with me this morning. Uh, Before I teach, though, I want to say a couple of things. Uh, One is just uh, that... um, The Thailand missions trip is an incredible opportunity. I mean, to take 25 high school students and a handful of young adults and then also leaders and give them the opportunity to go evangelize in Thailand, I mean, that's the kind of experience that can really change the trajectory of your life when you're in that stage of life and uh, just sort of put things into perspective. So... I wanted to double down in just mentioning that they would love our financial support. Many of you have already given, you've already been very generous, uh, but they've been having various bake sales and I keep waiting for someone to go buy a $20,000 brownie. So if you're the kind of person that you have that kind of capital, the Lord's put it on your heart to be praying for an opportunity, something to invest in in the kingdom. Uh, I think this is a very worthwhile investment because I think what these kids are going to get in extending themselves in this way is going to shape their lives for many years to come. So pray about it if that's something the Lord's asking you to do. I also secondly just wanted to address this service in particular. Last Sunday at the 11 o'clock service, about two-thirds of the way through my sermon, I totally lost my voice. I couldn't even explain to you what was happening, that's how bad it was. I just couldn't talk. It's only happened to me one other time. Uh, It was at our staff Christmas party this year where we were in a loud restaurant and I was projecting my voice talking about each staff member. 
And I knew that it took about 10 minutes for me to even be able to speak again when it happened then. So I didn't want to waste your time by standing up here coughing and sputtering and drinking water and all that for 10 minutes. So that's why Pastor Manny came up and valiantly concluded the sermon. Yeah, I know he did a great job. Yeah. Uh, So uh, I'm trying to do different things to take care of my voice. I I don't know what it is. I haven't been to see an ear, nose, and throat specialist yet, uh, but I'm hoping to at some point. But um, you can be praying for me. That's obviously a scary thing for anybody that uses their voice like I do. Uh, So you can ask God to have mercy on me. But as we just sang, I'm thankful to the Lord for everything and and any season that would even make me more desperate for him. Uh, But today, I want to talk to you from Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and give you a message called Jesus's description is his prescription. So let's pray together and ask the Lord to speak to us today. Lord, we come before you and we ask, Lord, for your goodness, your grace, your mercy, Uh, Lord, we thank you for this Thailand trip, and we ask, Lord, that your great hand of blessing would be upon it. Lord, I still haven't heard yet uh, whether the car accident was uh, fatal or if somebody was badly injured. Lord, if that's the case, we pray for your hand of comfort to be upon uh, the families left behind, or if they're injured, we pray, Lord, that you'd watch over them right now and give the doctors great wisdom. Uh, Lord, we come to you uh, today thanking you for this building that we get to gather in. Thank you that it is not the church, but that we, the people, we are your church. And we pray that you'd speak to us this morning from your word. Thank you for giving yourself, Lord, so abundantly to us. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Well, the book of Revelation is an interesting book. Uh, Many people are confused by it. And there have been various lines of interpretation that have been thrown out about the book over the years. Uh, But one thing is clear. Uh, This book has served to comfort the church in every generation of its existence. Uh, It just communicates, at the very least, whether you understand it or not, whether you have a firm conviction on the way it should be interpreted or not, It stands as a testament to the ultimate victory that Christ will win. He will reign. He will conquer. uh, He he will vanquish ultimately all sin and death and evil and suffering. Every tear, as the book concludes, will be wiped away. And we will enter into everlasting joy with him if we've believed in him and trusted in him. His kingdom that we pray will come on earth as it is in heaven. It will come to earth as it is in heaven, uh, as revealed here in the book of Revelation. The book begins, though, with John on an island, banished because of his ministry, having a vision of Jesus. It's a revelation, in other words, of Christ himself. And he describes what he saw in Revelation chapter 1. It's not the Jesus that you read about in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. It's the glorified Jesus. It's the same figure, the same person, but just in his glorified, exalted, heavenly, and eternal state. Uh, John saw him there with eyes like fire. He saw him there with head, uh, a head of hair as white as wool. He saw him there with Uh, feet made of bronze. 
He saw him there with a white, clean garment. He saw him with a golden sash or belt around his waist. He saw him with a sword, a double-edged sword, protruding from his mouth. And John was overwhelmed by what he saw. Jesus began, though, speaking to John. And in speaking to John, he explained to John that he wanted to communicate to seven historical, actual churches that existed in the first century. Seven churches in what is modern-day Turkey, or but what they would have thought of as Asia Minor in that ancient world. And Jesus, communicating to John, gave the churches seven letters, one unique letter for each church in existence at that time. Now, all of these churches, as you read through the letters, were in various states before God. Some of them were incredibly healthy and prospering. Some of them were healthy but struggling. Some of them were unhealthy and in need of the Spirit's discipline. Some of them thought they were doing very well but were actually doing very poorly. And in each one of the letters, Jesus speaks to the church exactly what they need to receive. Recently in my morning quiet times, I was, came to the book of Revelation, and I made the decision that I would just take one letter for each day until I worked through all seven letters. I wanted to think a little bit more slowly than just reading a whole chapter. I wanted to think a little bit more slowly about what Jesus was saying, and it reminded me that this is a passage of Scripture that can serve as an excellent diagnostic for how we as a church collectively, but as individual church members before God, are doing with the Lord. And in the letter, Jesus starts every single letter with a description of himself. Every description that he gives of himself is borrowed from the revelation that John had in the first chapter. And I think what I want to show you today is that every description that Jesus gives of himself to these seven churches illustrates a facet of Jesus or an angle to Jesus or a part of Jesus in his ministry that that particular church needed. And what I want to say today is if you cut out any of these seven attributes from your life, you will not stand a chance at being as healthy mature, vital, or fruitful as God could make you if you would receive all of these elements of Jesus. All right, so let's think about these seven attributes as we move through the text. I'll just uh, say them to you. Bernard might have put together uh, outline and slides by the second service, so thank you, Bernard. Uh, But the first one is this. We need his person. Number one, we need his person. Person. This can be found in Revelation 2, verse 3, the beginning of Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, as you move through the book or the letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus, it's very clear that Jesus really appreciated the church in Ephesus. They were a uh, godly church. They were an effective church. They were doctrinally on point. Uh, They were fruitful. They rejected false doctrine. They'd done a lot for the kingdom of God. 
And uh, the church in Ephesus is actually one of the churches that you can go back and read about in the book of Acts. Some of these churches you won't find there that just weren't the subject matter of the story. But in the book of Acts, you can discover what the church in Ephesus was like. And they were an incredibly fruitful group of believers. You might call them a Bible church. Uh, You might call them a missionary church. They worked hard. They were zealous. Uh, But Jesus, in the midst of his letter to the church in Ephesus, he told them, but there is something that's wrong with you. And it's very simple. You've, You've left your first love. You're, you're doing the right things. You're, you're going through the motions. You, you, you're behaving maturely. There's not rampant sin in your midst. You're trying to obey me. You, you want to follow after me, but you've wandered from your first love. And I want you to repent, and I want you to return to that first love. So how does Jesus describe himself to the church in Ephesus? Well, he describes himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. You say to yourself, how in the world is that helpful? Well, in chapter one, Jesus described what the lampstands and the stars both represented. The lampstands, he told John, represented the seven churches and the stars represented the seven angels or spokespersons or mouthpieces or even potentially even the pastoral leadership of these seven churches. It's as if Jesus is saying, here's what you need to remember. You need to remember that I am walking in the midst of the church. I am there amid all your study and doctrine and fruitfulness and obedience and discipline and sanctification and growth and progress, I am present. I'm holding your leadership in my right hand and I'm walking in your midst. And I find that this is a major part of the Christian life to just know that Jesus wants to be part of our lives. He wants to be uh, in relationship with us. And sometimes as a Christian, we have to revive that, don't we? We drift a little bit. It becomes a little bit stale. And the Lord is looking to us and asking I want, and saying, I want you to return to your first love. G. Campbell Morgan, who was a pastor of Westminster Chapel in London in uh, the time period right after uh, and surrounding World War II. I remember actually going to see Westminster Chapel when we were in England a few years ago because he's one of my great heroes of the faith. But he talks about this particular passage and he says what, what, the kind of love that they'd left was like a marital love. Uh, there, there was something that Jesus wanted that was deeper than infatuation, deeper than even honeymoon level love, but entering into the true depths of openness and honesty and oneness that can be found in a mature and godly marital relationship. And, and anybody who's married can probably relate to the idea of going cold in your marriage from time to time. And realizing, man, we got to do some things to reignite the fire that was there. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church. I'm here, I'm present, and I want a relationship with you. So number one, we need his person. Number two, we need his resurrection. We need his resurrection. For this, we come to the church of Smyrna 
In chapter two, verse eight, would you guys read it together with me? Jesus, writing to this church, said unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. What a cool description of Jesus. Can you imagine being able to say that? You know, I mean, how, how, how bad is that? You know, that Jesus can say, here's who I am. I'm the one who died and came to life. But here's what the people in the church in Smyrna needed to know. They needed to know that because of their faith in Jesus, because of their trust in Jesus, they also would one day be able to say, I died and I came to life. Because Jesus would raise them into resurrection life with him. Now, why did they need that particular message? Well, the church in Smyrna was the suffering church. Jesus actually, in his letter to them, told them, you will suffer for a set period of time. Some of you will die during this set period of time. Jesus was not going to rescue them completely from the persecution, but he was preparing them for its eventual reality. And listen, there's something about a confident belief and hope in our future resurrection that does something to your spirit, soul, and psyche. You know, in the early days of the church, uh, there was this period where uh, the plague or sickness began to break out in the Roman Empire. People were dying left and right. They were trying all sorts of solutions to try to heal people and nothing was working. And what they began realizing was uh, this is a human contact kind of sickness. So you're gonna get this sickness if you're in contact with someone who is sick. And so people began fleeing the city centers of the Roman Empire in droves, except for the Christians. Christians began making the opposite decision and deciding to go to the cities. Uh, that's really when the church began uh, doing so much of its medicinal, nursing, uh, hospital kind of work. And of course, as a result, many Christians lost their lives because they were caring for the sick. But many sick, their lives were saved because all they really needed was someone to nurse them, to clean them, to give them a warm bed, a hot meal, and to care for their bodies long enough for their bodies to have a chance to recover. But my suggestion today is, how do you make that kind of decision unless you believe in the resurrection that is coming for you? That's what was so thick in the hearts of those Christians. They knew, even if we die, we will live. You know, Esther said, if I perish, I perish. But Christians can say, if I perish, I will live forever with Jesus. All right, so that's a huge doctrine to get in your heart if you want to have this robust relationship with God. Okay, the third thing, though, his person, his resurrection. Number three, his word, his word. Uh, let's read what Jesus said to the church in Pergamum in verse 12, or how he started his letter to them. It says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, 
This imagery of Jesus is probably, to me, one of the more shocking parts of the imagery. A white robe, I can handle. You know, white hair, I can handle. Even eyes of fire, I can handle. But a sword protruding from his mouth. I mean, it's starting to look like a heavy metal album cover by this point. You know, I mean, this is, this is a deep cut that John is, is giving to us. Now, even just thinking about it, you might begin connecting the dots and thinking to yourself, well, it's coming from his mouth. We speak with our mouths. We have tongues in our mouths that help us to articulate words. So perhaps this sword is representative of Jesus's word. On top of that, however, we have scriptures like Hebrews chapter four, which tells us that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a double-edged sword. So it appears that uh, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is appearing right here in uh, this revelation that John receives. Now, why did the church in Pergamum in particular need this aspect of Jesus, the word? Why why did they need this aspect? I mean, wouldn't we say as Bible-believing, Bible-teaching a gospel-loving people that every Christian needs the word. Yeah, every Christian needs all of these elements of Jesus. But why did this church in particular need the word? Well, as you read through the letter to the church in Pergamum, it's clear that they had begun to believe doctrines that were abhorrent to Jesus. They'd begun to believe the doctrine of a man named Balaam, which is a reference to the Old Testament a figure named Balaam who taught a king of the Moabite people named Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. And what he apparently taught him was, you need to seduce the men with Moabite women, and that's how you can slow down the people of Israel. That's how you can bring a curse upon them. You can't do anything to them, but God will begin to discipline them if you bring this temptation into their lives and they succumb to it. That was the doctrine of Balaam. And then they also were succumbing to a doctrine by a group called the Nicolaitans. And we're not certain what doctrine they were believing, but it could have been a doctrine that meant that there was a separation between the laity and the clergy in a sense that the laity were being told, you can't ever understand the Bible. But the church in Pergamum was beginning to believe these things. And so Jesus, he rebukes them sharply and says, here's what you need of me. You need the word. You need the word. I'm sure you've all had a conversation with somebody who names the name of Christ. They might even be a legitimate, true believer. But they've made a decision to cut out portions of the word that would apply to their lives. They've made a decision to be the Lord of their own lives. If not looked into the word to see how does it shape me? What does he say to me? What does God think of the truth? And we've got to be a people if we want everything from the Lord who say, I want your word above all things. I've been studying recently the book of Proverbs because when we're finished with Galatians, I'm gonna take you through a short series through some of the topics that Proverbs gives us wisdom about. And as I've been doing that, I've been coming across the constant refrain throughout the book of Proverbs where there is this woman called wisdom. And the author is always pleading with his son 
to have a relationship with this woman called wisdom. Like, I want you to know her. I want you to love her. I want you to romance her. That's the idea here. We need the wisdom of the word. It's got to get into the fabric of who we are. The fourth thing, though, that is needed, if we really want a robust, complete, total Christian life and experience, is number four, his discipline, Jesus's discipline. Uh, to the church in Thyatira, Jesus said in verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Why did, why did Jesus say this to the church in Thyatira? Well, if, if the church in Pergamum had started to believe false doctrines, the church in Thyatira had received them and run fully into them. And one of the leaders that they'd followed was, Jesus said, a woman called Jezebel. Now, Jezebel is one of those names in the Bible that no parent would ever name their child with that name. It'd be like, uh, I want to name my child uh, Adolf or something like that. You know, you'd probably say, I think I'm going to steer clear of that name for a little while. Uh, Jezebel was one of those names because in the Old Testament era, uh, Jezebel was used to trip up the people of God. She introduced the worship of Baal to the northern kingdom. Uh, it was her work that prophets like Elijah and then Elisha after him railed against time and time again. And the church in Thyatira was listening to some kind of doctrine that had some kind of connection to that Jezebelian error. And so John says, it's like you're listening to this woman. So what did this sexually immoral, totally living in rebellion kind of church need? First of all, it's shocking to me that Jesus even thought of them as a church at all when he describes what they were doing, but they were his people. And he speaks to them and he tells them, here's what you need of me. I am he with eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. Now in the Bible, bronze is the metal of judgment. And eyes of fire have an indicate, indicate being able to see all things. So Jesus comes into this church and he's saying, look, your secret acts are not secret to me. And I see all of these things. And I come as the righteous and pure and holy judge. And if you read the letter that he wrote to them or spoke to them through the, the apostle John, it's a letter that's filled with warning. Unless you correct yourselves, Jesus basically says to them, I will be forced to correct you myself. Now, this isn't part of Jesus's nature that we immediately gravitate to. We like the parts of Jesus that are comforting the little sheep that is lost and wayward. Uh, we like the part of Jesus that is raising people from the dead and healing us of our maladies. But let me tell you, the disciplinary hand of the Lord is one of the best, most beautiful, most loving elements of God that you could ever experience in your entire life. I think the scariest experience you could go through is to have God leave you alone. But to have the Lord say, hey, here's a thing in your life, and I need to touch it, is absolutely beautiful. 
I could tell by the people that are nodding their heads this morning that I'm not alone when I say I've experienced God saying, hey, that's not cool, and I have to deal with it now. (laughs) But that disciplinary hand of the Lord is a part of who Jesus is, and we need that. Okay, so the church in Thyatira received that from the Lord. Number five, uh, we need his spirit. We need his spirit. Look at what Jesus said to the church in Sardis in chapter three, verse one. It says, unto the angel of the church in Sardis, right? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, I already told you that the stars, uh, Jesus said in chapter one, are uh, Uh, an illustration or a metaphor for and are representative of the leaders or the angels or the mouthpieces of these particular churches. But what about these seven spirits? Is this Jesus's way of saying that there are seven holy spirits? No, not at all. It probably is a a reference to a passage in Isaiah which talks about uh, many faceted ministry of the singular Holy Spirit And probably what is happening here is Jesus is saying, I'm the one who has the spirit of God, and this is what this particular church needs. Now, you guys know that when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, it says in places like Ephesians chapter 4 that he then gave the Holy Spirit to his church. And you read about that in places like Acts chapter 2, where after Jesus ascended, the church waited in prayer, and 10 days later, the spirit came down upon them. Why did the church in Sardis so desperately need the Holy Spirit? Well, for a terrible reason. Jesus would say to them in his letter, you have a reputation for being alive, but I know that you are dead. They they looked the part. They looked fruitful. They looked godly. They said all the right things. But in actuality, there was a deadness within. They weren't truly spiritually alive. Jesus says, here's who I am for you. I'm the one who has the Spirit. Now, we need the Holy Spirit, but one thing I want to draw your attention to is how Jesus expected them to apply this. He said in verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. He tells them, here I am. I have the spirit. I have what you need. And then he also says, you wake up and you strengthen what is about to die. The thing about the Lord is that his command is also his enabling. In other words, when he says to them, you need the spirit and the way to access the spirit is by waking up He's saying, I'm not asking you to just sit back passively and wait for the spirit. I'm asking you to stir up the spirit that is already inside of you. And when you do, when you wake up and begin to strengthen, I will meet you and give you the power and the revival that you need. I love this. There's a story in the life of Jesus where uh, the religious leaders wanted to test him because they really didn't like that he was doing Jesus-y stuff on the Sabbath day. Uh, They thought, this is not a day for healing people. This is not a day for helping people. 
uh, you know, they would say things like, there are six other days in the week for you to miraculously heal people, you know, like uh, there's just one day that God does not want you to work miracles of healing, and it's his special day, no healings on God's special day. <laughs> so there was this one moment where Jesus was in the synagogue on a Sabbath in a town called Capernaum, and he's teaching and the religious leaders wanted to see if he would violate their interpretation of the Sabbath. So they put a man in the synagogue, planted a man who had a obviously withered hand. Everybody could see the man's injury. And in those days with what Jesus was doing, anytime somebody rolled in with crutches or a wheelchair and Jesus was there, it's like people started connecting the dots, like looking around, like what's gonna happen here? And Jesus noticed this man. He was brokenhearted that he was being used like this for the religious leaders. And so Jesus called the man, told him to stand up. Jesus walked to the man, and rather than touching him or saying a prayer over him, Jesus looked at him and said, stretch out your hand. And as the man began to obey the word that Jesus spoke, his hand was miraculously healed. It's a powerful Moment, and I think Jesus probably took a step back at that moment and looked around and was like, "Well, I didn't. I'm not. I, I don't know if I did that. I just told him to stretch out his hand. He did that kind of thing." But it was not Jesus's way, of course, of saying, "I'll heal anybody who wants to be healed." I mean, in one sense, Jesus does say that. If you believe in Him, you will be healed one day. So that is the truth of Scripture. But it was Jesus' way, I think, of showing us that, hey, when I tell you to do something, when I give you a commission, my power, my strength is there for you as you step out in obedience. And so Jesus tells the church in Sardis, I have the spirit, and I want you to step out in him. Number six, we also need Jesus' mission. We need Jesus' mission. This is a component of the Christian life that a lot of people miss out on, and as a result, they're only living a partial Christian experience. He said in verse seven, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, but Asia Minor, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, the church in Philadelphia was an incredible church. They didn't receive any correction from Jesus. He had only good things to say to them. Uh, they were a church that had a little bit of strength. They weren't incredibly powerful as a group of people. Jesus said, I see your little strength. Uh, but they were a fruitful church. They were a missionary church. They were sending people out. They were doing the Great Commission kind of stuff that Jesus asked them to do. And Jesus describes himself in a very special way to this group. He says, I'm the one who has the keys of David. That's a phrase from the book of Isaiah. And it alludes to Jesus being the king who came from David, sitting on the throne of David forever. It alludes to Jesus's kingly authority. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the one who opens opportunities for you as a church to step out into the mission that I've given to you. I'm also the one who closes opportunities. When I open a door, no human being can close it. And when I close a door, 
No human being can open it, is the idea that Jesus is communicating to this church. This is a facet of a robust and complete relationship with God that I think a lot of people miss out on. You can say to yourself, I, I, I wanna enjoy Jesus personally. You can say to yourself, I, I want to believe in and have my life shaped by the resurrection power of Christ. You can say to yourself, I wanna be a student of the word. I'm gonna get into scripture. I'm gonna study. I'm gonna go to Bible studies and I'm gonna dig into the truth of God's word. You can say to yourself, I'll even embrace the discipline of Christ in my life and be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. But what I find is that the second that you then also say, I am going to be about the mission of Jesus. I'm gonna disciple people, I'm gonna mentor people, I'm gonna serve other people. There's just this thing that begins to click when you put your life on the line in this way. I'll just be honest about it. I'm a very selfish person by nature, by my flesh. My flesh doesn't wanna serve people. My flesh doesn't wanna help people. But when the Spirit of God grabs a hold of your life and he begins showing you there's a way to life that's better. There's a way to life that's more beautiful. And you begin walking into that. What you begin realizing is, oh, this is actually the best thing for me. It's not just good for others, but it's good for me, my experience, my growth, my transformation. I mean, take, for example, uh, a desire to grow in your personal prayer life. That's one of the things we've been kind of been talking about today, the spirit of God in your life. That means you're gonna be a person of prayer. You wanna grow in prayer. Well, one of the best ways to grow in prayer is to become a person ministering to other people who are gonna ask you questions like, how do you pray? What's your prayer life like? How does it go for you when it's dry? How do you push through in prayer? And uh, if you kind of just get tired of giving the answer, well, I don't know, I don't really pray, you realize, I gotta do this. It holds you accountable and keeps you pushing forward. So embracing the mission is so important. Okay, last one, number seven, and then I'll let you guys go. Number seven, we need Jesus's perfection, his perfection. And I'll explain what I mean to you. It says in verse 14 of chapter three, the last and final church, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, as you go on to read the letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Laodicea, you discover that this is one of the churches that was in the worst possible condition. Jesus had nothing nice to say to this church, really. Um, and their issue was that they thought that they were wealthy. They thought that they had power and ability. They thought they were in need of nothing, Jesus said. But he said, in actuality, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked, you're pitiable, and you need to humble yourself and come to me. I'm the one that can clothe you. I'm the one that can give you everything that you need. But it's interesting how Jesus describes himself to this church. He says, I'm the amen, like I'm the last word. I'm also the one who was there, present at the beginning of creation. And 
in between all that, I have been the faithful and true witness. That's how he describes himself. What does that mean? That means that for this church of people that felt that they had arrived, Jesus is saying, you haven't arrived, I've arrived. You're not perfect, I'm perfect. You have many needs, I have no needs. There is no flaw in my person. There is no flaw in my character. From the very beginning, the foundations of the world, to when the last amen is uttered, I have only done, said, and been that which is faithful and true. I'm perfect. Now, why would a church like this need to know that message? Because they thought they were perfect. (laughs) And sometimes when you get spiritual pride and personal loftiness in your heart, the thing that you need more than anything is a realization of the perfection of Christ. And remembering that it's not about comparing yourself to someone else on this little ball called earth, but it's about realizing that the Holy Spirit of God is trying to carry you into Christ's likeness. And so maybe you're a little further along in becoming like Jesus than the person sitting next to you, but it's like he's up at the ceiling, you're like here and the other person's right here. Is that really something you wanna brag about? That's the idea, you need to see the perfection of Christ, it helps bring a humility into your heart. All right, so these seven elements, Jesus' person, resurrection, word, discipline, spirit, mission, and perfection, they're all vital to our relationship with God. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning. Thank you for not just revealing yourself to us, but giving yourself to us. That's what you did. And these descriptions of yourself, they're not just far away, ethereal, but they're right now in the present. You're available to us, and we thank you. So we pray, Lord, that you'd help us Uh, Lord, to grow in you. If there's been a facet of you that we've been neglecting, we repent of that today and we pray that you'd bring us back into a healthy and robust relationship with you. Lord, thank you for this uh, little week this week that's different to take a break from Galatians. Thank you for this passage in your word. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.